Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc, researcher. You know it. Travel medicine. <laughs> I know that this whatever property <laughs> is like a million years old, but I know they still own it and they're going to sue our ass. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Santosh, it's finally spring, right? Is it? When's the first day of spring officially? I always thought uh, it was daylight savings. I thought so. We we what do you call it? Roll ahead. We jumped ahead. We we leapt ahead. We spring forward. We spring forward. That's guess it's got spring in the name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, did you literally just try three times with "Let's roll ahead"? <laughs> you know, the time of year when you roll ahead. When you roll ahead, you don't know how many times I have told people. Have you rolled ahead? And I've gotten weird looks, and I've thought that, oh, oh, okay, maybe people don't know. <laughs> and I, I thought I was educating people, Josh. <laughs> and walking by, and yeah, they just, they just think I've just completely lost my marbles. I'm sure as I whistle and you know stride down the the wards. I actually double checked while you were rolling ahead. Yes, yes. And the first day of spring is actually tomorrow, March 20th. Assuming I get this episode up on time, for those of you who noticed two episodes this week, hey, technical difficulties moving the feed. Sorry. Sorry, guys. Yeah, we're we're making some changes to try to, uh, you know, roll ahead. (laughs) No, no, no. We're rolling ahead with the changes to help interact with you guys better and post more stuff for you to see. And, you know, in, in general, be better podcast people. 
And just as we finish springing ahead, we're going to make this work one way or the other. There will be no falling back, just like that permanent daylight savings law. There will be no falling back to our old feed. So this is what it is. Yes. uh, Those of you outside of the United States who may not have heard of it, yeah, we do this crazy daylight savings time thing. And Congress, our Congress, who has, you know, nothing better to do, right, Josh? They decided to tackle not the, as far as I can tell. <laughs> they decided to tackle the massive problem of having to change your clock twice a year. <laughs> so. That said, I figured since we're finally into spring, yes, let's gather up a bunch of stories that could possibly relate to getting that spring beach body. Maybe not in the way you're thinking. I'm personally hoping that you'll throw me a bunch of quick fixes that will come in the form of like a laser or a pill. Oh. Instant beach body. Well, we do have, I guess they're quick in terms of effect, but obtaining them may not always be as quick. So Santosh, it's time to talk about how to get that spring body in everyone's favorite alternate week episode. Oh, yeah. That's right. Oh, it's yeah. time for yeah. another Journal Club. Yay! Yay! He said it. We, you seem to be, you know, extra, extra kind of sensual tonight. What's going on? Oh, I'm sick. Terribly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that... Oh, you tease! It's you. not even—it's not even like the good, sexy voice. Sick. It's just uh. <laughs> the first part of spring is building up that beach body, right? Yes. Oh yeah. And of course, that involves going to the gym, or as I like to call it, the James, based on how often I'm there. <laughs> you guys, you guys are still on very formal terms. <laughs> However, I read, and I definitely didn't cherry pick this study. <laughs> No no confirmation bias here, you're saying? Nope. Okay. But even a three-second workout every day can make you fitter and stronger. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We have now advanced beyond five-minute abs all the way down <laughs> to three-second biceps. <laughs> this, is, this is kind of insane when you put it that way but i think when you actually talk about the actual study then it'll make a little bit more sense in context how about that well yeah but i mean that's that's why we started doing these journal clubs to begin with the headlines are catchy and attention grabbing sure often ludicrous but the studies themselves point to some very interesting things okay cool so a team of researchers wanted to see whether literally just a few seconds of working out a day can make a significant difference. No one's becoming, you know, a world class weightlifter or Olympic athlete from it, but a partnership between Edith Cowan university in Australia and Niigata university of health and welfare in Japan recruited a group of university students and split them into two groups. 39 of the students performed one bicep curl, or I guess, more than one they performed a bicep curl at maximum effort for three seconds a day five days a week over one month yeah and just to kind of iterate for you know where they were kind of starting with josh the abstract of this paper specifically says young sedentary individuals (laughs) 
So they specifically picked people who were not exercising beforehand. Meanwhile, 13 other students were the control group and were told not to exercise over the same period. The workout group had to do three different bicep curls. So again, we're looking at just a single group of muscles. This is not a three sec. You can't work out your whole body in three seconds. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the workout group did three different bicep curl variations. Isometric, where you're holding the weight parallel to the ground. Concentric, where you're raising the weight. And eccentric, where you are lowering the weight. All of this was done with a resistance machine, Again, over the course of one month, which at three seconds a day works out to 60 seconds over the entire trial period. That's right. (laughs) This whole trial only had them working out for collectively one minute. Yeah, they had those uh, 13 kids per group over there, just like you said, Josh. Isometric means keeping the length the same, right? So that's kind of like if if you're li- if our listeners, so if you kind of just flex your bicep, but just hold your arm at the same length, right? So don't don't actually try to uh, close your elbow or, or flex your elbow or extend it. Okay. Concentric, right? You're, you're shrinking. So you're bringing your, you're flexing your elbow and then eccentric, just like you said, you're extending your elbow. So that was 13, 13 and 13 and 10 in the control group, no training. In order to determine whether or not there was any kind of change. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the contractions of the muscles as we define the different workouts. They measured the maximum voluntary contraction of muscle strengths. They looked at the muscle fibers and saw how much contractual force, I don't even know if that's the right word, how much force (laughs) can they exert both before this study began and after its completion. And shockingly, the students in the workout group, that three-second one, did exhibit a notable change in maximum voluntary contraction for all types of bicep variations. Uh, And they were pretty close, about 12.8% improvement in maximum contraction strength for raising concentric, Mm -hmm. about 10% for isometric, just holding it in place, and 12% for eccentric, lowering. Lowering, So uh, when they looked at other measures of strength, uh, which you can go into a little bit, Santos, since you've got the study in front of you, not counting maximum voluntary contraction, there wasn't really a lot of change, less impressive results. We, we really are looking at if you, this is a very controlled study and I absolutely love it, but you're saying, okay, four weeks, five days a week, actually, Josh. So they got their weekends off. Okay. Well, yeah, you got to take weekends off. <laughs> So you've got to take the weekends off, but those three seconds where you perform that very specific exercise, you've got to do Monday through Friday. And then what they did for that, uh, the, um, the actual torque, what they were saying is they said, okay, um, uh, for, for the, they actually showed specifically where you're supposed to hold every you know weight or machine at what number of degrees and then how you actually flex or or whatever it is and all that kind of fun stuff so they just retested it they said okay well how how did they do the 
you know, on these flexion extension and then, you know, holding, uh, how quickly were they able to actually uh, flex or extend or whatever it is, right? So they were actually measuring like degrees per second, like how quickly you could move against resistance if you trained or if you didn't train. So just right there at the, uh, what do you call them? Your, your, your biceps. So your biceps, brachii and brachialis. If you just focus in on a single muscle group, can you train that single muscle group with a minimum amount of time to show some improvement? And they powered it in such a way, Josh, it was, it was really smart that even with a fairly small sample size of students, that they were able to show a significant difference between, you know, the, the groups that did their exercise versus the control group that never exercised the specific exercise that they were given. So this isn't one of these <laughs> where you can like get healthy or your beach body, I don't think, but you can improve the performance of a muscle over time, even with minimal training per day. I think that's the best way to say it. Is that minimal fair? training, maximum effort? Yeah, <laughs> um, it is. It's maximum voluntary effort. Yeah. That's now <laughs> a few a few other things to point out. Again, the contractile force is what changed the muscle thickness. No difference. So you're not getting swole from this. No, yeah. So yeah, actually, you're not. You're not even talking about getting the beach body. You're, this is function. Yeah. Uh, however, the results show that again, even very short workout training sessions. So for all of you who are like, I have, you know, I don't feel like I'm doing enough to get my beach body. Let this be a lesson. If you can improve with only three seconds a day, imagine if you move up to a minute a day, or even five minutes a day <laughs> well or, I, or what you do you know we as doctors often recommend to people at least 30 minutes of aerobic exercise yes three times a week <laughs> but but these yeah. results are especially significant for beginners people who have never worked out haven't worked out for a while and for those who are deconditioned in the hospital like as a hospitalist, I pretty much reflexively order physical therapy on anybody who comes in. But if what I'm hearing from the therapist is if you can maintain function with even as little as three seconds a day, that tells me recovery from prolonged hospital stays could really be improved with just the barest amount of physical therapy. So it validates my beliefs. Yeah. I will say, well, I'll add in another kind of extra piece here, which may be helpful for a lot of people who genuinely are thinking of, hey, you know, I want to start exercising, but I, I don't know kind of where to go or how to start or what to do. I will say that it, it sounds really, really weird, but just doing the equivalent of three seconds of exercise, right? So if you do the single push-up or the single bicep curl and just say, you know what? Uh, I, I know I don't want to do much and I don't want to get started. I'm just going to do the one bicep curl. Josh, it, it seems strange, but psychologically, for whatever weird reason, that as a starting building block can be a great, you know, kind of uh, you know, little incremental step by step where 
you can move that towards that same type of thing that we're saying about, you know, 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise per day. Um, so it, it can happen if you allow yourself to kind of build from uh, even ludicrously small goals like this. So, yeah. so if you'd like to read more about the study, links will be under further reading in the show notes. And it was published in the journal Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science in Sports. <laughs> <laughs> some I great journal names it. out there yeah it's some fantastic journal names yeah let's move on to our next story for improving your health and vitality and this is actually a follow-up we've covered this story before and now there's some more information about it uh do you recall santosh we talked about poaching blood from the young and giving it till the elderly <laughs> to fountain of youth ourselves back to those beach bodies. <laughs> well, we didn't quite put it that way because that kind of sounds like you're endorsing the idea, which we are totally not. But yes, well, based on some beliefs that you could rejuvenate yourself by getting a transfusion from a younger person, there are folks who have tried this. And based on those practices, the actual evidence was examined, starting with animal models. And interestingly, Josh, where we were last that we kind of checked was that giving an old mouse, transfusing an old mouse with blood from a younger mouse did result in some kind of rejuvenation, energy, cognition, this kind of thing, improvement. But I don't think we were able to translate those findings into humans well the good news is i mean aside the only the only human it's been translated into rejuvenating old mice into young mice is walt disney but yeah, we've been through this the, the poor man's dead leave him alone yeah yes the rejuvenating effect of young blood was found to occur in mice we haven't figured out how to expand it to humans but on the next step in that pathway we may have figured out how it's having that effect in mice. And that was yeah. the interesting part from this study. And it seems uh, there's a couple pieces involved. There are packages of RNA and proteins that will bud off from cells uh, and travel via the blood to other cells to join them. So kind of like parts of the cell are taking an Uber, going <laughs> through the body and visiting other cells and kind of just moving in there. So when researchers injected these cell buds that are called vesicles into old mice, it reversed several signs of aging, including boosting muscle strength, hair growth, and improving coordination and endurance, all things that are trademarks of aging. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they basically had a standardized – it was kind of like – Josh, you remember like um, – What's the obstacle course one? Uh, Ninja Warrior? No, what is that? It Ninja? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Ninja yeah, Warrior. Yeah. Ninja Warrior. So there's Ninja Warrior and there's American Ninja Warrior and there's Global. All kinds of things. But it's a standard course that you kind of run through to say, oh, how good are you? Kind of thing. That we have a standard circuit of animal workout. <laughs> tasks that we do to say like you know how fit are you so grip strength when you have them hang on a little pole uh motor coordination and then fatigue resistance frailty scores yeah 
it's 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 a fun little like mouse obstacle course thingy that we do over the last decade a bunch of these studies have been shown about young blood and there are signs that might work in people too and i'll i'll reference that in a moment but consuelo boras at the university of valencia in spain thinks that the specific makeup of these vesicles extracellular vesicles because they leave the cell they're tiny bags of chemicals released by cells that's where he thinks the real answer is he doesn't know if the effect is completely due to the vesicles but he's pretty sure that they play a role the team that first demonstrated the effects of young blood in 2012 which were in stanford university Mm -hmm. did look at experiments that linked the blood supplies of young and old mice but they hadn't examined the vesicles however a separate study at the university of pittsburgh found again that these vesicles and blood can help muscles regenerate in mice. So we're seeing a lot of this vesicle role start to come up more and more, but they're focusing more on muscles than anything else. And the reason for this is when these extracellular vesicles, these little chemical bags fuse with the new cells that they visit and release their contents, the proteins and the RNA that they've carried can switch genes on or off and therefore alter the behavior of the cells they're traveling to. So they're a form of cell-to-cell communication. This is something that we now have very well established, right? So, Josh, even when you and I were in medical school, we had these ways of cell-to-cell signaling, right? We had direct paracrine, eccrine, endocrine, where a cell could either communicate directly you know, next door or kind of across the body through the bloodstream, however it was. But we always thought of these as either free chemicals that were floating around. So thyroxine, for instance, or that there would be something like a big protein that would bind it and then carry it around to different targets. Um, This is an education that we've gotten over the past, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, maybe that our cells actually do send off these vesicles that bud off as potentially signaling type of things. And the well, RNA- this, is, this is where it came through because when yeah. they looked at young cells, both young and old cells may contribute to aging. But when they looked at the contents of the vesicles from young cells compared to those from senescent cells, right. older cells that no longer replicate, sure, they sure. did see different packages being sent. Um, okay, cool. So in order to do this study, the researchers first got stem cells from fat from young mice sure. and then made extracellular vesicles. So they pinched a little corner and twisted it into a little baggie <laughs> yeah. and made vesicles. And they injected old mice with two doses a week apart of either these new vesicles or just a regular saline solution. And a month later, the grip strength and motor coordination of the older mice had improved. They could exercise for longer compared to the saline mice who had no difference. And neither did mice injected with vesicles from other old mice. So old to old, nothing. Saline from whoever to old, nothing. Young stem cells, vesicles to old mice improvement in strength and balance they also looked at fur regrowth and much much more advanced in mice given the extracellular vesicles but about two to three months after the original injections the effects had faded so now they're doing this monthly to see if it can extend the lifespan of the mice overall the idea that you can isolate what the 
chemical or substances from the blood because we had a few ideas, right, Josh? We said, oh, maybe it's something that's actually in the red blood cells because that's what people would often do is they'd get a, a transfusion packed red blood cells, right? And then we were looking to see if it was um, plasma or serum or one of these things. But if we can actually isolate, at least in the mouse model, what is helping out with these changes that we saw when we did whole blood transfusion or red blood cell transfusion, then we can really hammer down. And interestingly, Josh, they were able to do something called an epigenetic clock where they were actually able to see, okay, how far back did we kind of, uh, you know, tweak the the individual cells uh, by actually looking at what genes were turned on and which ones were turned off. That's the epigenetics, right? So they were able to find de-aging specifically a lot more in the kidney and the liver. Um, strangely enough, I know we were looking at the the clocks being reset and we'd want to see the effect on the muscles but the epigenetic clock in the muscle actually stayed about the same so very very strange glad you mentioned some of these because we have tested this with plasma and other things in humans in the past since around august 16 there is a company ambrosia (laughs) we've mentioned before and they've been trying to really promote this young blood and plasma and even though they are a little suspect in some areas sure sure the study has shown that people who were transfused and who paid eight thousand dollars for the privilege of this transfusion for a study right uh, did note a 10 percent fall in blood cholesterol levels a 20 percent fall in the level of amyloids and even a 20 percent uh, fall in some biomarkers associated with cancer. However, the major issue with that study and why I'm not going into it in more detail is that there was no control group. And again, this is really more of a startup company than an active scientist, uh, an active science study. Um, yeah, however, that they thing... did talk about giving old mice blood from human teenagers. No, <laughs> yeah. No, that that was not – I agree with you, Josh. That really wasn't science in the sense of you're testing a hypothesis. They were really just running observations after an intervention and ba- basically just reporting out the results, not trying to control for a particular outcome or anything like that. All that being said, it is interesting that – you're talking about that in terms of, you know, the, the pathways that they kind of saw, because at least in this mouse study, um, there, they were, uh, the, the, the researchers were actually able to look at, you know, a kind of a molecular pathway analysis and a biological processes analysis of which processes really got enriched and, um, altered the most, uh, you know, depending on, you know, if they got the intervention or not. And a lot of the pathways that kind of got altered or enriched um, had to do with so inflammatory processes, right? So interferon gamma, um, P38 MAP kinase, you know, RAS. So all the things that you were talking about where you have, you know, the inflammatory plaques that lead to coronary artery disease um, and hypercholesterolemia or um cancer and some of the things that are responsible for kind of clearing the amyloid that we actually just accumulate 
by aging are kind of uh, upregulated and pushed. And in a larger sense, um, the, the biological processes that were enriched by giving this transfusion of these microvesicles were things like axonal fasciculation, uh, neuron projection fasciculation, and cardiac muscle cell proliferation. So the cells that actually help us move, twitch, all that kind of a thing. Makes sense. It's a lot of big science words. And I'm still <laughs> sick, so I'm going to sum it up. Yeah. Bad science is charging people $8,000 to give them blood from teenagers and see, maybe it makes you younger and let's track the biomarkers. But you can still build on that questionable science. And now, uh, as we said, this study that we've been talking about with old mice and giving them monthly injections, they are now planning a human trial. However, because of the safety issues involved in injecting extracellular vesicles directly into the blood, especially when they still don't know what components of the vesicles are having the effect. They're just oh, yeah. mm-hmm. kind of focusing on this as a target. Yeah. The team is planning a human trial that will instead involve applying the contents of these vesicles directly to the skin to attempt to heal pressure sores in elderly people. Oh, okay. So okay. he also thinks skin application could have cosmetic benefits. Now, if you are taking teenage blood and not injecting it direct, and I'm, I'm just using teenagers as an example. I don't know yeah, what, what age. the age group yeah, yeah, exactly. they are, they <laughs> to, are presuming. To, to be fair, we don't know where they're harvesting from, which in and of itself is kind of scary. But but <laughs> it does make me think, horror story-wise, you you know Elizabeth Bathory, correct? Oh, How all I, of this started. The, yeah, I remember the name, but remind me. The noblewoman who was said to maintain her youthful appearance by routinely bathing in blood. uh, Oh, yeah. Obtained from very questionable places. (laughs) And what we're starting to see, this this researcher, Boras, who says he thinks skin application could heal pressure sores and have cosmetic benefits from young blood. He's essentially conducting the scientific version of of what Elizabeth Bathory was doing years and years ago. <laughs> so it turns out she may have been right. So uh, we'll it. see. No. <laughs> I didn't say she was moral or ethical. I sure, simply sure. said her, her hypothesis that bathing in blood or smearing blood can help you appear younger and more vita- uh, increase your vitality may not have been wrong. Okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, okay. even bad science can lead to good science that's how we learn sure okay fair let's move on to our our next study so now that we have smeared ourselves in blood and done three workouts maybe you want to maybe you want to improve yourself from the inside actually you know what no, let's let's look at wound healing. I'm not quite done with wound healing yet. And, and I sensed your hesitation in blood injections. Okay. So let me ask you, Santosh, how do you feel about healing wounds with cheese? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm a vegetarian, not a vegan. Uh, I am. Uh, I, I, I'd be down with uh, cheesing it up a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk about giving ourselves more youthful appearance, getting that nice beach body with cheese. Now, before you start getting excited, I don't want you to go out and smear cheese on yourself. (laughs) Thank you for that. Yes. Okay. Cheese making bacteria have been engineered to produce skin repair proteins that promote rapid wound healing. And again, we're starting with this in mice. 
not okay. humans. But there is a clinical trial underway to look at chronic wounds that frequently develop in people with diabetes. Yes. Okay. So we're we're talking about because you have poor circulation to the skin, poor innervation, then you end up getting these uh, these bad ulcers and sores all over the place. Yeah. The biggest threat to people with diabetes is that if you don't maintain. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Very, very tight control your microcirculations. So areas where the blood vessels get very, very tiny, such as your fingers or your feet or your eyes can end up developing. They become clotted more easily. And about a quarter of people who have diabetes often end up at some point in their life with open wounds that we call ulcers that don't heal because all the healing things are carried through the circulation. If you have poor circulation, you're not getting the healing. In severe cases, these affected body parts, when they are kind of stagnant and not getting enough circulation, end up becoming infected and having to be amputated. I I know you see this a lot more than I do, Josh, being in adult medicine rather than in pediatric medicine. So it it happens over a, a long period of time. This isn't something that happens, you know, you get diabetic and boom, you know, it's just like that. It's it's much more so that you kind of have neglect, neglect, neglect. And eventually, um, especially over areas of pressure, right? So places, you know, wherever you sit, for instance, really get hurt and uh, that the area of skin loses circulation, loses innervation, doesn't heal properly. And then I think, what is it? Once the wound kind of starts, it really, really has a very hard time ever closing, right? Unless you really like take a long time to take care of it. Yeah. Very often you'll get uh, the vascular teams involved and they try to open up as many vessels as they can to improve that circulation. Cause you really can't fix it once you've lost that thing. So back to Finland. Jer Kirkipuro at Aurelius Therapeutics wondered if wound healing in general could be improved by simply administering proteins traditionally involved in skin repair. But instead of injecting these into wounds, the idea was to genetically engineer bacteria, which get into the ulcers anyway, genetically engineer bacteria that could continuously produce the needed healing proteins 
once it was applied to damaged tissue. Now, okay. here's where I have a lot of respect for our Finnish colleagues. Sure. They wanted to choose a bacteria highly unlikely to trigger unwanted health effects in people or develop into an infectious thing. So they're like, yeah. we've seen a lot of <laughs> sci-fi movies. We know how this goes. Sure. And that's where cheese making comes in. They used <laughs> okay. they used Lactococcus lactis bacteria, a okay. very common cheese making bacteria, and one that in the worst case, you know, you eat, maybe you'll ferment something, but it's not going not gonna to cause you any problems. And then they genetically engineered these bacteria to produce three skin healing proteins, fibroblast growth factor 2, interleukin 4, and colony stimulating factor 1. Yeah, they, they put them all on a plasmid, Josh. So a small circular piece of DNA, right? So they call that little plasmid. PC-CFI. You know. And plasmids you can think of as <laughs> USB drives that bacteria trade amongst themselves to mm-hmm. upload new kinds of resistance or uh, get rid of weaknesses that they may have had. So Right. So instead of having to make a mutation you know, on their chromosomal DNA, which is difficult to achieve in, in terms of biochemistry and that kind of a thing – you can basically just get an instruction for a brand new protein by just opening up your membrane a little bit and allowing this little ring of DNA to come in. And then you can just read straight off of it. So they took these genetically engineered cheese bacteria and applied them to one centimeter wide wounds on mice that were inflicted to mimic diabetic ulcers. And after a week of daily smearing, the wounds were pretty much fully closed compared to wounds that have been treated with an inactive substance, you know, non-altered cheese or I don't know what. Uh, <laughs> no, no. And that, and that you, didn't you, close you, at all. So you get away from the cheese. <laughs> no. Okay? So, stop it. Stop it. The, the bacteria, the lactococcus are used in making cheese from milk, but we're not actually using the cheese at this point. Okay. We're using. Well, no, no. I'm saying they, they treated wounds with an inactive substance. I don't know yes. what the inactive substance was. <laughs> For all I'm aware, they yes. could have said bacteria on this wound, cheese on this wound. <laughs> the point being the bacteria worked to close the wounds fully. The inactive substance didn't. Okay. Okay. Fair. All now, right. these these bacteria would recruit immune cells in the area. They would promote the growth of new blood vessels. So right. remember, once you've lost that microcirculation, it's gone. But they are attempting to promote new blood vessel growth and boosting cells with fibroblasts that form connective tissue between the immune and the blood vessels with no major side effects observed in the mice. Sure. So that okay. was considered a successful trial. As a result, they are now starting to test these in people with diabetic foot ulcers in Germany and Poland. Nice. Yeah. So the PLOS one study that we read, so we have talked about phase one, phase two, phase three studies, Josh, before, especially as it pertains to vaccines. Phase one is preclinical meaning it is before you use this in a human being. So mouse model, animal model, is a perfect phase one type of trial. So you now have a what's considered to be a living pharmaceutical, so the altered lacto 
Caucus Lactis, and you have now examined it in a phase one trial with with an actual control. So I absolutely love it. So now you can move to phase two. You say, hey, does it work on a person? Now you may be asking, why are we rubbing bacteria onto foot wounds to begin with? Well, the reason <laughs> is, as somebody who deals with a lot of diabetic foot infections, one, they have a unique smell. Really, but, yeah. putting bacteria on it's not going to change that it can only make it better. But right now, most of these ulcers are treated by cutting away the dead skin, sometimes to the point of amputation, and then applying dressings and giving antibiotics. But as we've said, antibiotics often have to be given for a very long time because most antibiotics only work when they are delivered to you via the bloodstream. You can't just like mash a, you know, a pill of amoxicillin into your skin and expect to get better. (laughs) It has to be swallowed or received (laughs) IV so right. the idea and of something you can apply topically that will provide that higher level healing is real important. Right, right. And we've tried it all the time, right, Josh? So when we give an antibiotic for these, we attempt to put in, you know, topical mupiracin or which is Bactroban or Bacitracin, any one of these things. But even when it's dissolved in a fat soluble something, so petroleum jelly, the problem is it just doesn't stay there very long at all. So the the molecule, the antibiotic that's in there gets completed, used up, you know, dried up and then falls off really, really quickly. So it, it, it doesn't have any staying power there because, you know, your skin sloughs off and the, the wound kind of sloughs off. So the antibiotic falls off with it with time. Bacteria are evolved over a long period of time to grab onto a spot and stick. So it's the perfect little delivery method. As long as they're happy and they're not trying to eat you, they can hang out and actually deliver all the good stuff that we need. In this case, Josh, it was really ingenious because it's not, you know, can we put an an antimicrobial in there, you know, actually secrete an antiseptic or an antimicrobial. But hey, why don't I actually put in like a healing factor, something to actually help your, your skin recover? So everything about this is absolutely amazing. I love it. Um, now, some of the other treatments that are included, which are only pertinent because they move on to our next story, include things like hyperbaric oxygen therapy or negative wound pressure or electrical stimulation. So we're going to move on from the foot. And this one isn't necessarily about getting that beach body, but it is about maintaining the organs that you're carrying around in that beach body. Okay. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm stretching the metaphor a bit. I'll I'll admit. (laughs) You're, you're talking about uh, maybe like if you have to store an organ that you're going to put into the beach body? Yeah, there you go. Okay. The, the idea being, let's say you needed a transplant to get to the beach. I don't know what kind of life you're leading. <laughs> but... Okay. Or say you wanted to get a transplant and you're going to the beach. There you go. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is organs don't really transport well outside the human body. This is what sure. makes transplant medicine such a high stakes field. And a lot of these organs run out of energy while they're between the donor and the recipient, even assuming you've made it to the right place on the wait list and you're in the right place at the right time. But 
this new study has shown that an electric field may be able to keep them running and improve overall survival. Oh, Uh, nice. Okay. Now, so far, the approach does seem effective, and we'll talk about what that is. It has been effective in mice, again, mice given transplants, (sighs) as well as in human kidneys stored for 24 hours, which would be, you know the length of time it might take to fly across the world to get an organ to someone. But it hasn't been tried yet on organs that have been put inside people. Oh, okay. Okay. So as in we've gotten, we've tested the viability of this method on kind of keeping the organ alive outside of the person, but we haven't moved to the point where, okay, let's try actually transplanting this into a person and see if it works. Right. So let's start by looking at just the kidneys. That's if you have to have an organ transplanted, honestly, kidney has probably the best bet. There are more kidneys out there than any other available transplant organ. (laughs) Right. Uh, You can donate a kidney without uh, actually, you know, harming yourself really you, you can live perfectly fine with one kidney um it's not a lymphoid organ so it's one of the least immunogenic so least likely to reject least likely to cause graft versus host um and it's resilient enough that we can even use transplants from recently dead people so what we call a cadaveric transplant is viable despite so a great uh testing testing organ despite all of those benefits a lot of kidneys don't function well after surgery because they're damaged from lack of oxygen during the transport from donor to recipient sure okay and this could be even as short as like you know down the down a couple floors in the hospital unless you're taking it out right then and slapping it into someone low oxygen stops kidney cells from making enough of a compound called atp which is the energy currency of the cell. And in the kidney... Made by the mitochondria, which is the... Powerhouse Powerhouse. of the cell. (laughs) Is that just like a reflexive thing you have to say now that we've made it through med school? Mitochondria, powerhouse of the cell. Yeah, exactly. Just like when you say spleen reservoir. (laughs) You say spleen reservoir. Uh... (laughs) I just did. So usually (laughs) ATP powers a pump on the surface of the kidney that keeps sodium levels low in the cell and potassium levels high. If that switches up, you run into problems. But these molecular pumps are also sensitive to electrical fields, not just oxygen. Okay. So Rui Sheng Lu at the University of South Florida in Tampa. Mm-hmm. has found that putting electrodes on the surface of the kidney and just applying an oscillating electric field can restart many of the cell's pumps, even when they have shut down or been damaged by low oxygen. Oh, nice. Okay, so this is, uh, uh, we're getting a little Frankenstein here, Josh, because we're actually talking about not just, well, you know, using an older organ here, but we're talking a little bit here about bringing cells back from the dead. We're talking about bringing cells back from damage. I I don't know. I don't know if it's reviving dead cells in the kidney. 
but it is what? certainly it is certainly preventing them from getting damage from low oxygen by providing an alternative energy source. So to test gotcha. the approach, the researchers gave 10 mice a kidney transplant after the organs had been stored in cold saline. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Just imagining the like the tediest, tiniest kidney transplant. <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Seven of the mice received kidneys that had been given the electrical treatment. So their cold bath had had an oscillating electric field. And when tested, these mice had over 50% better kidney function than the three that received untreated organs. And this was determined just by looking at common blood tests of renal function. They also tested this approach in five pairs of human kidneys that had been donated, but unfortunately weren't in a good enough condition to use or be transplanted. Too much of them had been damaged in order, in the sense that it would have been immediately rejected by the host, or it just wasn't a viable organ, but it had already been donated, so they may as well still get some use out of it. Okay, gotcha. One of each pair of the human kidneys had four electrodes placed on it, while the other pair was just stored again on ice for 24 hours. So electrodes plus ice or just ice. Afterwards, when they looked at under a microscope, the cells of the treated or electrified kidneys demonstrated less damage. Oh, cool. Okay. All right. And this is the one where you're kind of, this is the coolest part about this, which I absolutely love. You're manually... You know how we do chest compressions, Josh, for reviving hearts, right? So you're just keeping the blood pumping by physically, you know, squeezing the heart from the outside, right? Chest compressions. You're doing like teeny tiny little like, you know, like biochemical compressions. You're like manually turning these sodium potassium pumps to help them generate ATP. This is so cool. With a little bit of a bzz, bzz. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like, <laughs> the same way that we do with like, oh, clear, you know, something like that. But it's on a teeny tiny scale. I, I love everything about this. This is so great. So the full study is published in Science Translational Medicine. This is a real exciting idea because as the, as the research advances, Damage to transplanted kidneys and or any organ from lack of oxygen is a huge problem, contributing to immune rejection as well as amount of viable organs. So if you can make organs last longer, fewer people have to return to the wait list. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. All of these methods that we're talking about, you know, I, I know we're still talking about transplant rather than the the big thing which we have talked about in the past which is like actually regrowing the organs and stuff like that but we want to make sure that when we make the effort to transplant an organ that it's viable that it's available and that it has the least chance of actually getting rejected or thrown out so all I right love all of these it's it's so it's so amazing So now you've healed all your wounds. You've got your transplant. You've stolen some blood from young people. You've done all these things. You're ready to head to the beach. You're going to go out. You're going to flirt. You're going to find your preferred kind of gender or partner and maybe take them back for some afternoon delight or (laughs) sun time, fun time. Sure, sure. 
Okay. Good news, because in our final story, and another amazing segue by me, uh-huh, uh-huh. the FDA finally, which was, I, I like that that was the emphasized part of the title. Sure. The FDA has finally approved a condom for anal sex. <laughs> Now I know what you're thinking, Santosh. Okay. Do do you? <laughs> I don't know how you possibly could, but all right, give it a give it a go. You're thinking condoms have been around for quite a while. Why do we need one specifically for anal sex? <laughs> you know what? That's that's entirely fair. Yes. So we as physicians, if you're in primary care, if you're giving any kind of advice on sexual health, then we do say, okay, no matter what type of sex you're engaging in, that a condom is very, very useful. Um, it does prevent, uh, you know, transmission of multiple, multiple sexually transmitted infections, as well as with, you know, uh, male and female sex, uh, you know, prevention of, of, of um, uh, birth control. If you want to do birth control, it's, it's good for that too. But I know for a fact that when we have ever discussed anal sex with any of our patients, we say, absolutely, you should still use a condom. And the subject really doesn't come up as to whether you know, it's approved or not approved. So I I think this is the greatest part. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Prior to this study, I devoted exactly 0% of my thought power to ever wondering what condoms were approved for. But as it turns out, (laughs) it doesn't take very long to read up. Condoms on the market were only approved for vaginal intercourse. Uh, Of course, they are recommended Okay. For use during anal or oral, meaning they're legally backed by the CDC for one activity and informally deemed effective for another activity in what's known as off-label use. So all of your condoms have been used previously for off-label anal. Yeah. <laughs> which is a great band name. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if any of you any of you guys, you know, you were starting uh what do you think, Josh? Like punk rock? Prog rock? I think I, I feel like off label anal is more of a punk rock band. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Punk rock maybe. And so if any of you guys I I don't know, Josh, have you ever managed a band? I don't think so. <laughs> Okay, listen, real quick. This is not a new thing in medicine, right? There are plenty of times where we use a medication off-label. We know that it's effective. Oftentimes, we actually have good studies showing that the off-label use is just fine and effective of whatever it is, whether it's a medication or a device like a condom. So there's nothing new about this. But I think it's a well, good... well, well. Let's let's hold on. Okay, okay. There is something new about this because okay. again, why would they? Why would the FDA approve a condom for anal sex? Sure. If it had no difference right. from condoms designed for vaginal sex, and right. as an infectious disease doctor, you know the risk of uh, infection, the risk of sexually transmitted infections during anal intercourse is significantly higher than during vaginal intercourse. Right. And there's several other problems with it, including uh, we sometimes never think to ask 
in terms of, you know, when we're talking about sexual health and we want to address someone's questions. And there are a lot of people who are either uncomfortable or just uh, ignorant about things like what the symptoms of gonorrhea or chlamydia, for instance, uh, can cause in the rectal vault or in the colon. And so you could end up completely missing a diagnosis, you know. But as always, Josh, prevention is way, way better than having to treat. So let's let's go into the study. And the difference is, it's same thing, natural rubber latex sheath that's meant to cover the member. Uh-huh. It's available in three different versions, standard, thin, and fitted. The fitted, which is available in 54 different sizes. So no more like I'm Magnum or I'm average. Or like You have 54 options to choose yeah. from fitted. <laughs> sure. Okay. And it incorporates, it incorporates a paper template to help find the best size for each user to minimize leakage. They... The company that makes the condom, Global Protection Corp, great name, Mm -hmm. stresses (laughs) that during anal intercourse, you should employ a compatible lubricant with their condom as well as any other brands. Yeah. So um, results show they did a clinical trial of this particular condom made up of 252 men who prefer sex with men and 252 men who prefer sex with women. All volunteers were between 18 and 54, and researchers demonstrated that the total condom failure rate was 0.68, so just over half a percent of failure for anal sex, and 1.89, so about 2% for vaginal sex. They defined condom failure as slippage, breakage, or slippage and breakage events over the total number of sex acts recorded in a diary by participants. So there was a little bit of a flaw in the study, but I think it was a very necessary one because you are doing self-reporting here, right? So we know that there are difficulties with self-reporting, but I think in this case, Josh, they powered this study very, very well by using such a large sample size that you're able to kind of um, statistically account for even if people have inaccuracies in their reporting in those diaries when they come back. Now, they said one of the essential reasons, so the researchers from Emory who were behind the study said one of the essential reasons for the success was that the volunteers... All of them used lubricant, which prevents slippage and breakage, which are much more likely to occur in anal intercourse as the vagina tends to provide its own lubrication, whereas the anus does not. So taken together, these findings suggest that health bodies should provide lubricant along with the condoms. I will say, Josh, I I think that providing that kind of data was excellent. Now, one thing they weren't able to do, unfortunately, was to actually calculate the baseline and occurrence of sexually transmitted infections. As in, they couldn't get an an initial STI baseline because there were a few too many variables that could you know, you could say, oh, if this group had more STIs or if this group had less STIs, either one like that, we didn't have a good baseline because there are more variables than just condom, no condom that go into that. So um, they were able to say 
okay, you can self-report any genital-based infections, um, you know, during the trial period, but they weren't really able to give that data in any kind of a context. So the important part really was that the physical integrity of the condom was excellent. So we'll have to see how how this study develops. And again, just because there is now an approved condom for anal sex does not mean that you have to use exclusively that this one. one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Please use protection regardless of where you are sticking it. It's just a good idea. Mm-hmm. That said, for populations in the LGBT community who are much more likely to be engaging in this kind of intercourse, this is great because now they're being prov- provided what we hope is a more equivalent level of protection. Although you mentioned, as we don't have an STD baseline, we don't know exactly the rate of equivalency. Right. I'm almost certain that this data will be pursued uh, because as you said, Josh, Uh, When people do engage in anal sex, it is a different risk strata in terms of transmission and acquisition of sexually transmitted infections. So it, it should be properly addressed in a different sense, in a more broad kind of social sense, which is super, super important. We're kind of normalizing and giving good options for people who engage in different types of sexual practices without making one group of people feel, you know, left out or marginalized or anything like that. So that in and of itself will also help us a lot because it means that more folks like that will feel safe and comfortable talking to us about sexual health and receiving counseling on things like uh, prevention and treatment. So just kind of a win all around, not just in the the narrow scope of the approval of this type of a condom. And that's it for this week. So as always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. We took you from three-second workouts all the way to anal sex in the space of one episode. So if you have things you want to share with us, we'd like to hear them. I can't find a flaw in your statement, but I still don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This show is produced by me with a lot of help and disapproval from Dr. (laughs) Santosh and friends. There's got to be a reason I can give you to cut that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. No, no, it's it's perfect. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. And as always, that in so casually, it's just yeah that that was my double entendre. (laughs) And as always, yeah. Until next time, stay safe, wash your hands, get your shot, wear a mask. Still. If you're immunocompromised, it still benefits. People can Mm -hmm. carry other things besides COVID. And once you've done all those things, find a country that's open. Maybe avoid Europe for the moment. Mm -hmm. And once you do all those things, find a country that's open, get your ticket, and happy travels. Bye, guys.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.